Arsenal for Democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple and Stitcher. And we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy for $3 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee, and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. New York Island. The Redwood Forest. Gulf Stream Waters. This hand was made you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. This is episode 456, recorded on Sunday, January 22nd, 2023. In the 1810s through the 1850s, a group of close-knit, wealthy Boston-based investors became even richer by building textile mill complexes in Massachusetts and setting up associated business ventures in railroads, insurance, and banking. I covered all of that in the previous episode, but this week it's time to talk about how they created the modern capitalist conception of philanthropy in the United States. As we'll see, this conception was often quite distinct from charity. This is part two of our podcast episodes on the book Enterprising Elite, The Boston Associates and the World They Made by the late Robert F. Dalzell Jr., formerly a longtime professor of American culture at Williams College, published in 1987 by Harvard University Press. We already covered part one of the book, and also the first chapter of the second part of the book, as well as the book's epilogue on the first episode, because those worked well together thematically for the structure of our show. We pick back up today with the second chapter of the second part of the book, which examines the Boston Associates' role in philanthropy more specifically. And after this short episode, I will return next week with a final episode on the Boston Associates in Massachusetts and national politics and their decline from dominance in the 1850s. So remember, one of the big themes of part one was the idea that these rich Boston merchants and their families wanted to come up with a reliable, decent profit margin that would turn their existing wealth into intergenerational wealth. Uh, But the key thing was not enormous profits, although they wanted to have healthy profits, but it was about the stability and low risk of the profits and the low effort of those profits, right? So many of those guys had become rich by engaging in high-risk, high-reward mercantile activities in international shipping, but that was inherently risky, and you could really uh, screw up there, and you had to put in a lot of work to get that rich and stay that rich. So if you wanted to make money without having to put in a lot of effort, uh, becoming a, a joint stock investor in one of these Uh, proven and tested uh, textile mill complexes or one of the associated businesses was a great way to go. But with that in mind, let's think now about the next step of what happens when you have that huge reserve of wealth building up and it's uh, freed up all of your time. You're not really doing anything, but you're continuing to make money. What do you do next? Well, the answer we know from today's perspective is obviously philanthropy, right? That's what all the rich people with uh, their idle profits uh, tend to do. And this starts with the Boston Associates who kind of come up with and pioneer this concept. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Many of the Boston Associates, once liberated from the busy tasks of running maritime shipping businesses by the steady, mostly passive income of textile mill shareholding, became fairly enthusiastic philanthropists in Boston. 
27 of the associates at one time or another served as trustees of the Mass General Hospital, which was mentioned in the life insurance section of the first episode. That hospital was meant to offer help and resources to the urban poor who had no one else to rely on. A significant share of textile mill profits was also donated to the hospital, either directly or via the insurance company through its charter mandate. Quote, between 1811 and 1851, its members contributed one out of every four dollars raised for the hospital. Dalzell notes, however, that the donations to the hospital when it was originally being built were actually overwhelmingly small-dollar donations from the general public, which showed an interesting collaboration between the city's wealthiest elites and its ordinary residents, which was apparently often typical of public benefit philanthropic ventures in Boston, at least, again, at the beginning of this process. Also, Boston projects were not strictly limited to Bostonians, either in donors or beneficiaries, as it was generally understood that they would be useful to people from all over the Boston area. Again, this is going to evolve over the course of this period from the 1810s to the 1850s, especially as their wealth grows by a significant order. Some of the former merchants had gotten their startup capital as coastal merchants from successful farmer fathers in the countryside, and those fathers had also been locally active philanthropists in their towns since the Revolutionary War era, for example, funding local academies. So there was already some expectation of engaging in philanthropy um, at the beginning of this process, but of course this is going to get taken to a whole new level, and the modern version of philanthropy that we would recognize today is going to emerge out of this process. As a side note, addressing their trajectory away from rural gentry to rich merchants and then industrial capitalists, they could never have continued as New England farmers like their fathers because of the inherited property division requirements that rapidly split up rural landholdings, breweries, sawmills, or ironworks into non-viable farms or businesses. Many of these country towns across New England were economically and socially declining at the start of the 19th century, and that's important to think about as well in terms of their movement from these areas to Boston and then into the uh, mill owning. Philanthropy on a larger scale, concentrated toward the growing cities, was becoming necessary to maintain social stability as the tr traditional community life of New England was breaking down and a more alienated wage-labor model rose to greater prominence. Wealthy philanthropy to fund institutions for the faceless public was the replacement for traditional community charity or mutual aid. The early wealthy Republican men of the northern United States also understood fairly explicitly that being seen as openly aristocratic, either in behavior or family power, was dangerous to their family's ability to stay at the top of the social order without being overthrown and brought low. Philanthropy could buy goodwill and required enough attention and effort as to look like work rather than idleness, which mattered in a country or region whose identity was based on quote-unquote hard work. Hospital trustees, for example, made weekly visits in person to inspect the hospital and check on how the patients were being cared for. Again, it's very obvious, as we talked about in the previous episode, that these mill-owning businesses did not actually require them to go to the mills or even to set foot in the towns where these mills were based. That's the only reason that they have time to be wandering around hospitals making personal checks as trustees. For management and medical professionals, the trustees tended to hire from within their own families, and those positions were often handed down for many generations. Which is not to say they were unqualified personnel. They were often the medically trained younger brothers from the wealthy trustee families, for example. Quote, there is little evidence that the quality of care suffered as a result, end quote. 
This gave the less business-minded but still talented members of the families career opportunities, while also maintaining operational stability and collaboration between staff, management, and trustees since they were all closely related, which had proven a successful model in business. The Boston Associate families concentrated their residences together physically on Beacon Hill and around Boston Common, which were highly visible locations, but with rare exceptions, these homes were all carefully understated brick structures, perhaps to avoid provoking the populace. The Associates were, as a group, overwhelmingly interested in financially supporting literature, whether via personal collections or more accessible private libraries, such as the Boston Athenaeum Reading Room and Library, 90% of the Boston Associates were subscribing members of the Athenaeum. Perkins Institution for the Blind, which still exists today, was founded in 1829 and received a lot of donor support as well. Other uh, philanthropic causes included the Boston Female Society, the Boston Marine Society, Boston Medical Dispensary, which was for the poor, Boys Asylum, the Bunker Hill Monument, Massachusetts Medical Society, Massachusetts Charitable Eye and Ear Infirmary, Handel and Haydn Society, American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the Franklin Fund, the Green Foundation, and others. Most of these still exist today in some form or another. Harvard, obviously, was a huge component of the Boston Associates' philanthropic activities. Wealthy mill investors could fund the creation of new professorships in specialized fields so that their sons could become trained in those fields and not continue in business. And, of course, the new faculty and administrators were sometimes themselves drawn from these families. The biggest single donation from a living donor came from Abbott Lawrence, eventually the U.S. Ambassador to Britain. We'll talk more about him next week. Uh, And he provided $50,000 to launch a whole new college of science at Harvard, complete with laboratory space. And he left the college a matching further amount in his will. The associates, such as his brother Amos Lawrence, also individually dropped thousands of dollars a year on various private academies and other colleges, such as Williams. Many of the philanthropies of the Boston Associates, much like the insurance company with its large investment fund, ended up amassing huge endowments fairly quickly. This provided yet another pool of money in search of investment opportunities. Surprise, surprise, they concluded that the safest investments in the area were the ones they were already individually invested in. The upshot of this is that, quote, one gave money to support education or heal the sick, only to borrow it back from the Massachusetts hospital life and invest it in the textile industry, the very place from which the money had probably come in the first place. Meanwhile, the community found itself provided with valuable services, and in addition to involving people from many different walks of life, the effort created a number of highly attractive career opportunities for those with the right training and connections. End quote, and another quote, all society, Boston itself, was to be transformed into a kind of vast, harmonious joint stock company, with as many people as possible contributing and benefiting according to their respective resources and needs. End quote. There was a shift in philanthropy after 1842 when the economy recovered from the depression that had followed the Panic of 1837. There was an enormous expansion of the charitable institutions they had been supporting but this time a very narrow selection of 200 wealthy individuals or their firms made the necessary donations without turning to the general public for the small dollar donations that had been a major feature of the early fundraising drives a quarter century earlier. This shift occurred just before the start of the Irish Catholic immigration wave in 1845, which was about to disrupt the social order of Old Boston, 
with 31,000 new Irish showing up between 1840 and 1850 and often finding nowhere but Irish slums to live. This was about 70% of the entire population growth of the city of Boston that decade. The new Irish Catholic community ended up eventually building a lot of their own separate charitable institutions, while the existing non-Irish philanthropies pivoted from aiming to serve everyone toward aiming to serve only the traditional non-immigrant population. Facilities also tended to split into those for just the rich and those for the poor. For example, in addition to this happening at medical facilities or asylums, the Athenium adamantly refused to merge with a proposed Boston Public Library. Abbott Lawrence's will did leave $50,000 to establish a trust for creating dedicated rental housing in Boston for the poor. Dalzell argues that this is an example of the divergence of concepts of charity and philanthropy, and charities for the poor were expected to spend down surplus resources, like extra rental income from low-income housing, rather than holding it in reserves as investment funds or endowments like the philanthropies for the rich did. So, that's my episode on the philanthropy of the Boston Associates in the first Industrial Revolution in Massachusetts. It was an important tool in maintaining their existing status and power within society, and it was a role model for the second Industrial Revolution robber barons like Rockefeller. But next week, we'll talk about the direct political exercise of power by the Boston Associates and their Whig Party in pre-Civil War U.S. and Massachusetts politics. So this episode, obviously a little bit on the shorter side, um, but wanted to give this particular subtopic the attention it deserved on its own and not have it get lost in the shuffle with everything else. It was a long episode last week, and it's going to be a somewhat longer episode next week, although probably still not as long as the first episode. So thanks for listening, and stay tuned for that next episode.